Welcome to the Heartbeat Church Podcast. Our vision is for people to live in the image God intended them to be in. For more information visit heartbeatchurch.org.au As we begin our journey in the book of Judges, or I should say concluding, our journey in the book of Judges. We come to our final judge, Samson. And Samson completes that spiral, which we have met so far in Judges. We begin this spiral where each judge gets worse and worse and worse. And now we come to Samson. Samson, the strong man, and probably the most famous of all the judges but famous for all the wrong reasons. For Samson represents the state of Israelite society. Samson is ruled by only one thing, his eyes. And if it seems right in his eyes, then he will do it. Yahweh is the just judge. As we've met each judge, Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, Gideon, even Jephthah, all of them actually delivered the Israelites from their enemies. But Samson does not. Samson is the embodiment of an Israelite society that has become completely Canaanized. There is no difference from the nations around him. And to the Israelites. And Samson is the perfect embodiment of that. And if you don't know the Samson narrative, it's really quite straightforward. It can be broken up into four parts. Part number one is Samson's miraculous birth announcement to his parents. Part number two, which Nardos read for us, is Samson goes down to a place called Timnah, and there he sees a woman that seems right in his eyes. And then there's a part that involves a lion and some honey and some bees and the death of some Philistines, which we will explore today. And part three of the story involves 300 foxes tied together, setting them on fire, burning down Philistine fields, and Samson picking up a jawbone and killing 1,000 Philistines with that. And part number four of the Samson narrative is the famous Samson and Delilah story, where Delilah tricks Samson into cutting his hair, the source of his power. Now, on each of the judge narratives, we've been introduced to the opening refrain, which is the Israelites do evil in the eyes of Yahweh. As we've come to know so far, when the Israelites do evil in the eyes of Yahweh, what happens? Handed over to an oppressive nation. And the exact same thing happens there. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord of Yahweh. So Yahweh gave into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. As the longest period of oppression the Israelites have been under so far. This is how terrible things have gotten. 
But what happens when the Israelites are handed over to their enemies? What usually happens? There's a cry for help. Literally in Hebrew, a yelp of pain to Yahweh to deliver them. But what happens here? There's no yelp. There's no cry for help. There's no plea. This is how bad things have gotten. The Israelites now just accept the Philistines as their rulers. This is the new norm. Yahweh is no longer God over them. The Philistines are their masters. And this is what's unique about the Samson narrative. Samson, as a judge, is called despite Israel not recognizing they need help. Israel have no intention of worshiping Yahweh. Israel have no intention of following the Torah, the commands that have been given. But Yahweh will not leave them in that state. I said in many ways, Samson embodies Israel, their personality at that time. But Samson embodies Israel in the sense that he is called apart. Just as Israel was called apart from all the nations to be a light around him, so is Samson. He's called apart to be a Nazarite, someone who is unique, someone who will deliver Israel. And we read here in verse 2, after the Israelites have not cried out, there was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. Now, if you are a faithful Israelite who has read through the Torah and also the books of Genesis and Exodus, all the way up to the point in Judges, when you read that line, there, his wife was barren. That gives you a bit of hope. For it was the matriarchs, Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, and Rachel. All of them were barren women. All of them could not have children, but yet Yahweh intervened. And when he intervened, the children that they bore did something unique. Sarah's child, Isaac, was the promise to Abraham, the, the second father of the Israelites. Jacob's twin sons, they had a special, I should say Isaac's twin sons, Jacob and Esau, had a special role in Israel's salvation plan. Jacob's wife, Rachel and Leah, both wrestled with childlessness at some point. And each time when Yahweh intervened, these special children had this role in salvation history. So we have this high expectation. Here we've met this man, Manoah, with this barren wife. Now something unique is going to happen. And it does. Manoah's wife is visited by an angel. And the angel says a very, very simple message. You are barren and childless, but you are going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Here we go. Something special is going to happen here. Something unique is going to happen. Perhaps this baby will break Israel out of this spiral. Take them back to where they're meant to be. 
And our expectations are heightened. For the angel gives all these really specific instructions for what Manoah's wife is meant to do when she's pregnant with this child. She's not to have alcohol and she's not to have food that is unclean. For this child will be a Nazarite set apart before Yahweh. And what's very interesting was in Numbers chapter 6, when someone wanted to put a Nazarite vow, literally to be set apart for Yahweh, it was only for a set period of time. And there were three requirements for that. Don't drink alcohol, don't, eat un- don't touch a-, a body, and don't cut your hair. Here is Samson now, called apart to be a Nazarite. Here we go. Finally, Israel is going to be redeemed. Finally, Israel is going to be restored to the people that they are intended to be. And Manoah's wife, obviously excited about this news, rushes to her husband to tell him what the angel has told her. And then we get sort of this repetition in chapter 13, this back and forward with Manoah praying to Yahweh to bring back the angel to to reconfirm what he told his wife. The angel appearing just to Manoah's wife, then this sort of back and forward, and it feels very, very redundant. Why doesn't the narrative just tell us there was a barren woman who had a son and his name was Samson? And moving on. As we have learned so far, the book of Judges is this brilliantly written piece of Scripture. It's like art in writing. And what the Hebrew narrator is telling us here is that there is something, even though there's this special calling on Samson's parents, there's also this weakness within them. See, Manoah is portrayed as a bit of a stumbling idiot. He has to ask again and again before Yahweh, what are the requirements on the son that he is about to have? Manoah doesn't even recognize that this man that he is talking to is actually an angel of Yahweh. Manoah is afraid when the angel takes the sacrifice he offers and disappears into a flame. For the original audience, they would recognize that there is a calling here which is very similar to Abraham and Sarah, but it's being completely flipped around. Instead of the righteous Abraham and the not so faithful Sarah, here we have the unrighteous Manoah, and his wife is the faithful one. But even in the midst of that, the author is very, very clever. That announcement by the angel, you will have a child and then she will become pregnant. It's exactly the same in Hebrew as the angel's announcement to Abraham's maidservant, Hagar, and the son she has, Ishmael. Now, if you know the account from Genesis and Abraham's first son, Ishmael, the promise on him is that he will be a wild donkey of a man. 
This is what the author is doing. He's setting up this amazing tension within the narrative. In one sense, yes, there is this announcement, this exciting announcement that this barren woman is going to have a special son. But even in the midst of that, there is something not quite right about him. All these allusions, all these images to an unfaithfulness of his parents sort of does not bode well for Israel. Then eventually, Samson is born. And we read there in chapter 13 from verse 14, it says, uh, hang on, we'll skip the next one. Down here from verse 24, it says here, And the woman bore a son and called him Samson. And the young man grew, and Yahweh blessed him. And the spirit of Yahweh began to stir in him, and Mahanandan between Zorah and Estol. So I said there's sort of this tension here with Samson. Is he going to be good? Isn't he good? Then we're told he's born. And then Yahweh blesses him. And the spirit begins to stir in him. And we think, okay, perhaps, perhaps this little warning isn't going to happen. For as we've learned so far in Judges, when the Spirit is poured out upon a judge, say with the first judge, Othniel, he goes out into battle and is victorious. He does exactly what Yahweh commands him to do. With Gideon, he is clothed and empowered to go into battle. With Jephthah, with the Spirit, it's a sign of victory. Whenever the Spirit of Yahweh falls upon a judge, we expect something exciting to happen. And Samson has been called to rid the Israelites of the Philistines. So now we read the spirit began to stir in him. We expect to read in the very next verse when Samson went down to Timnah that Samson defeated 50,000 Philistines. But no, Samson went down to Timnah and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. What is going on here? Isn't the Spirit stirring in him? Isn't the Spirit getting him to do what he is called to be to do? To deliver the Israelites from the Philistines? Instead, we hear about the Spirit stirring in him, and his response is to go down to Timnah, where he sees one of the daughters of the enemy he's called to rid of. And this is where we see how Samson is ruled by his eyes. As he goes down to Timnah, he tells his parents, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. His mother and father object to this because his calling is to deliver the Israelites from the Philistines. Despite the weaknesses that we've met so far in Samson's parents, particularly his dad, they recognize that he is called to be a Nazareth. He is called to be set apart from everyone. He's meant to be holy before Yahweh. Here he is marrying an enemy. And their response to him is that, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people 
that you must go take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me. She is right in my eyes. And for Samson, that is all he cares about. If it's right in his eyes, then he will do it. And that refrain is very important. For when we get to the end of Judges, the narrator tells us the Israelites do what is right in their eyes. They do whatever they want. Samson is the embodiment of Israel. But before we throw our hands up in despair, the narrator gives us this wonderful divine insight from verse 4. His father and mother did not know that it was from Yahweh, for he was seeking opportunity against the Philistines. What does that little refrain tell us? Samson is ruled by his eyes. Samson will do whatever he wants. But Yahweh will overcome that. That stirring in his spirit has made Samson restless. And this is a tension between divine sovereignty and human control. Yahweh's spirit has stirred in Samson, and it's caused him to go down to Timnah. And because Samson is ruled by his eyes, he's seen this woman. She looks good to him in his eyes. But Yahweh has a different plan. This is the catalyst he will use to deliver the Israelites. Whether Samson wants to do it, or not, he will fulfill the destiny he was called to from his birth. And we see here just how brilliant Yahweh is just moving events to fulfill his purposes. As Samson has gone down to Timnah with his mother and father, Samson there cuts through the vineyards. He gets separated from his parents. And in the vineyards just outside of Timnah, suddenly Samson is attacked by a lion. And then, rather unexpectedly, for us reader, we don't know the strength that Samson possesses. We're told the spirit possesses him. And he grabs this lion and, like a goat, tears it in half. And now we get an insight. This is how Yahweh is going to save the Israelites. He's going to grant Samson tremendous strength. And his defeat of this line gives us a wonderful picture of what he is meant to be. Now, after tearing this lion apart like a goat, Samson, for whatever reason, does not tell his parents about it. And they continue traveling down to Timnah. And there they speak with the woman and her family. And Samson confirms that she is right in his eyes. And then the marriage event is settled. And if you're wondering why this mention of a lion and Samson ripping it apart is part of the narrative, well, we continue on some days 
later. Some days later, Samson is wandering down back to Timnah. And he passes that vineyard where he saw the lion. And probably out of curiosity to see what's happened to this lion, he looks at its carcass. And there, behold, something very strange is going on in this lion. A supernatural act. There's bees and honey in this lion's carcass. Now, normally the only insects that would be in a lion's carcass are maggots and flies. But remember how Samson is ruled by his eyes. So Yahweh has supernaturally put this beehive in this lion's carcass, and there Samson sees some honey, and he scoops down, grabs it, eats it, and gives it to his parents, but does not tell them where he got it from. There's a very, very important reason the narrator tells us that. For as a Nazarite, Samson was forbidden from touching dead things, humans or animals alike. And what has he done? He's gone and touched the dead lion to scoop out its honey, therefore making himself ritually unclean, therefore destroying his Nazarite vow. And when he hands that honey to his parents, he's also made them unclean as well. What this is giving us, giving us an insight into how Sansom accepts his calling. He does not care about it at all. For if he did, he would have left that honey there. But remember, friends, Yahweh is using this as an opportunity against the Philistine. And as was custom in ancient Near Eastern culture, there is a huge celebration for the wedding feast. And Samson is given 30 companions for the seven days of the festival. Now, Samson, the strong man, we expect him to fight battles against the Philistines. His very first battle is not a battle of strength, but of the mind. And there he proposes a riddle. So if they can solve the riddle, Samson will give them within, by the end of the seven days of the feast. Samson will give them 30 linen garments. But if they cannot solve his riddle, then they must give him 30 garments. And the riddle, it's impossible for them to solve. For the riddle is out of the eater comes something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. Samson's very, very confident that he is going to win this contest. And after three days of trying to solve it, these 30 companions realize that he has been tricked. Samson has rigged this contest in order to ensure that he will win. And in their anger, the 30 companions threaten Samson's wife with death by fire if, they, if she does not disclose their answer to Samson's riddle. And his wife, upset, weeps before Samson. From verse 16 we read, You only hate me. You do not love me. You have put a riddle to my people and you have not told me what it is. 
And he said to her, Behold, have I, not told my, have I not told my father nor my mother? And shall I tell you? She wept before him the seven days that the feast lasted. And on the seventh day he told her, because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people. And just before the end of the feast, as the sun was going down, the 30 companions came to Samson and And the tremendous strength of Samson, we've already been demonstrated, he can tear a lion apart, no problem. But his tremendous weakness is women. She just nags at him and nags at him, and she gets what she wants. But this is also the amazing thing. Again, we see here this tension between divine sovereignty and human control. Each of Samson's actions of great strength are triggered by women. See, it was Samson's lusting over the woman from Timnah, which was the catalyst for the spirit to be poured on him and tear apart the lion. It was him caving to his wife's demands, which made him tell the answer to the riddle for her. And now with this weakness of Samson revealed, His strength will be now poured on him from Yahweh. And in a blinding rage at having having losing the riddle, Samson goes to Ashkelon, just some 10 miles away from where he currently is, goes down to the city, and there he kills 30 Philistines, takes their garments and gives them to his companions. And then Samson storms home back to his parents' house and his wife is given to his best man. That's the end of part one and two of the Samson narrative. Samson, as you start to learn, he's probably not the best character to look to. He's not the best person to aspire to be. But we see here, this is part of the book of Judges with its spiral. As the Israelites progressively spiral out of control into their Canaanite state, we see Yahweh over the top of this, using his purposes to fulfill what he wants. And his purposes are for the Israelites to be the people they're called to be, even when they do not want to fulfill their calling on their life, Yahweh will still ensure that his purposes are fulfilled. And we see this just so clearly with Samson, a man who deliberately rejects his calling, who deliberately disobeys what he is meant to do. Yet God is still working behind the scenes, accomplishing what he wants, the destruction of the Philistines. Admittedly, 30 Philistines isn't very big, but it's a start. See, Samson, I think we can probably all identify with. For Samson is ruled by his eyes. What seems right to him is what he will do. And it's a struggle for all of us. For all of us are governed by what we like. We see something we want to do, then just do it. Whether or not it aligns with God's purpose.
purposes, whether or not it is the right thing to do. And one of the most encouraging things I find about the Samson narrative is just seeing God's fingerprints all over it. You see it everywhere. All these seemingly random events are not random. They're there for a purpose. And perhaps, friends, today we need to take off what seems right in our eyes and put on eyes that seem right in God's eyes. For imagine if Samson hadn't been ruled by what was right in his eyes, but what was ruled in God's eyes. Imagine the amazing difference he would have made to the Israelite society. He would have wiped out the oppression of the Philistines, wiped out the idolatry, wiped out the inherent sinfulness that ruled them. And friends, imagine if we lived in the calling that God has given us to fulfill. If we weren't ruled by our eyes, but by God's eyes. And again, the hero of the story is God. God, the one controlling everything. God, the one rescuing a people who did not even know, who did not deserve to be rescued. It's very hard to find redeeming features in Samson. But there is one interesting thing that Samson has in common with Jesus Christ. It's their miraculous birth. And at this Christmas season, it's very interesting that Samson was called to be a Nazarite, set apart from his birth. In the Gospels, Matthew tells us that with Jesus' birth, he is called to be a Nazarite. So he would fulfill Scripture. Jesus literally didn't fulfill the vows of a Nazareth, but he was called to be separate. He was called to rescue people who did not even know they needed rescuing from the greatest enemy of all, sin and death. So friends, as we come to this Christmas season, as we reflect on what Jesus Christ has done for us, think about the different eyes we need to wear. Jesus has come to change how we see the world, not what is right in our eyes, but what is right in his eyes. And perhaps if God has given you a calling to do something in your life and you're deliberately disobeying that, doing whatever you want, as the Sanson narrative will tell us, God will put a line in your path to force you into the direction that he wants. Question we must ask, is it not better to be obedient to God in the first place than to do our own thing and God having to force us back onto the right path? As we conclude the Samson narrative in the upcoming weeks, we will see just how badly Samson failed. And how had he just been obedient, things would have gone better for him and for Israel. Friends, let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for your word. Times confronting, times challenging. But Lord, we see your fingerprints all over it. We see how your hand guides everything. 
Even in the midst of a wicked society, they did not want to be saved. Even in the midst of a deliverer who was called, who did not want to follow his calling. But Lord, we thank you that despite our failures, despite our weaknesses, that you have given us the Lord Jesus Christ. That it is in him that he is the perfect sense and the perfect strong man, the one that's not ruled by his eyes, but ruled by what is right in your eyes. So I pray that we can wear the eyes that you want to do things that's right in your sight, not in our own. I ask for your help and strength in this. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Heartbeat Church podcast. For more information about services, ministries and sermons visit heartbeatchurch.org.au.